Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. Uh, like Becky said, my name is John. And uh, if you're new here, you should know that I'm not the typical uh, preacher here. Um, week in and week out, Brandon, one of our pastors, is preaching. Uh, he's a good friend of mine, and he's just been taking some time to like mentor me and teach me how to do this. But if you get a chance to come back next week, he's just really talented at this. I just like recommend that strongly. Uh, a little bit about me. Uh, I am married to Jenny. We have three kids, Evan, Owen, and Nora. We're members of the Morrow small group. We've been here for about a year and a half, and I'm an engineer at Wright Height. So enough John trivia. Let's dive into it. Um, in Galatians chapter 5, we hear that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And for the last seven or eight weeks, we've been in a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And Brendan has been teaching us how uh, this is just a list of things that describes a life that's being transformed by the gospel. And this is not really like a list of virtues to aspire to by your own effort, right? So like if you play video games, you can have a character and like level up their strength or stamina or something. It's not like that. Rather, this is something that's going to continually characterize us as the gospel transforms our hearts. Because like Becky shared earlier, we believe that the gospel is not just what saves us. It's what transforms us and continuously makes us look more like Jesus. Right, so when we see spiritual fruit lacking, the solution isn't moral effort, but rather we look at Jesus and we're transformed by the good news of the gospel. So for example, when Brandon taught us about pay, uh, peace, he taught us how when we have peace with God through the gospel, not through good things we've done, we now have this inner peace inside of us, and that gives us peace in the rest of our relationships. Likewise, when it comes to patience, the way to develop in patience is not to like grin your teeth and bear it with all the people that annoy you. Rather, we develop patience as we reflect on like Jesus' patience with us in the midst of our sin. Right, and this week, I'm hoping we're going to see how faithfulness also will inevitably characterize us as the good news of the gospel takes deep root in our hearts. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the good news. And um, man, it's like all we have to stand on this morning. So we just pray that like you would show off and look really good, um, that we just help, uh, help us to focus on the gospel and everything you've done for us, Lord. Amen. So I thought this morning we could start by like defining what faithfulness really means. Um, because before prep, uh, prepping for this, I didn't really have a strong understanding of what faithfulness was. What came to my mind was kind of this general idea of commitment or like loyalty, sticking it out, maybe not betraying or cheating on someone. But I want to submit this morning that faithfulness is a lot more than that. Right? Faithfulness means being committed to pursue another person's good for the long term, regardless of the cost and even if they're unfaithful to you. Right? Faithfulness means being committed to pursue another person's good for the long term, regardless of the cost and even if they're unfaithful to you. Right? So this definition has more to do with what we're doing than what we're not doing. And where am I getting this definition? Well, I really believe that this is what describes God's faithfulness throughout the scriptures. So you're going to find out this morning that I'm kind of an Old Testament nerd. There's a lot of like those illustrations, so I'll just give some context. Um, the first story that I have just comes from Exodus 34, and it's a story about Moses who just led the Israelites in the power of God out of slavery in Egypt, right? And they like take this pit stop on the way to the promised land at Mount Sinai, and here God is going to give Moses the Ten Commandments, right? So this is a huge moment in Scripture, but seemingly out of nowhere in this, Moses makes this request. He says to God, show me your glory. And God says, okay. But he says, you can't see my face and live, right? So he makes up this plan. He says, I'm going to take you, Moses. I'm going to put you in this cleft of the rock, put my hand over it, walk past, lift it up, and you'll see my back. And that's what happens, right? Moses gets to behold the glory of God in the physical world. 
And almost as if to give you and I a glimpse of what that looked like, God says this out loud as he passes by. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving the wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Right, so as Moses meets God on the mountain, God reveals himself in this short statement, and one of the things we hear is that God is abounding in faithfulness. Likewise, in Hebrews 6, we hear the story about Abraham and how God made a promise to him that at 100 years old, he was going to have a son, right? And in Hebrews 6, we hear this, that when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Likewise, we hear in the scriptures that God doesn't lie, right? He always tells the truth. Numbers 23 says this, that God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? Right, so unlike us, God never breaks his promises. Likewise, in 2 Timothy, it says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, right? God will not deny himself. Not only does God reveal himself as faithful, he displays it in his actions throughout the Bible. There's a story in 2 Samuel about King David, one of the great kings of Israel. And the scriptures have a lot of positive things to say about him, right? He wrote most of the book of Psalms. God describes him as a man after his own heart. And yet we see that David, too, is a sinner. In 2 Samuel, we'll read about how he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And on top of that, when she was pregnant, he tried to cover it up by having her, or her, excuse me, her husband Uriah killed, right? So his sin is egregious. Then we read on and we hear about how the prophet Nathan confronts him about what he's done. When this happens, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But Nathan says to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. And here's the point, God is faithful he had every reason to take David's life and more, but he doesn't. He fulfills the promise he made to David that someone would always be on his throne, and he stays faithful to him when he totally doesn't deserve it. Faithfulness is inherent to God's character. It is a huge part of who he is. Likewise, God commands us to be faithful. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus writes in Revelation chapter 2, Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And this faithfulness is supposed to play out in many areas of our life. Right? It's supposed to play out in our work. We're supposed to be faithful workers working for Jesus. Ephesians 6 tells us to work with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Right? And I just want to say that like, work looks like a lot of things. Right? Work is not just going to a job and getting a paycheck. Work can mean like being at home and being a caretaker of people in your family who are much younger or much older than you. And uh, it can also mean just like being a student, right? There's lots of categories for work here. So this applies to you. All right, so we were designed to be faithful workers. In the book, The Gospel at Work, Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert write this. They say, no matter what you are doing, you are doing it to glorify Jesus. And if you keep that one big idea in mind, it will change the way you think about your work and engage in your work. Why? Because when glorifying Jesus is our primary motivation, our work, regardless of what that work is in its particulars, becomes an act of worship. Right? Faithful work means working hard when no one sees it and no one will give you a pat on the back for the results. It means doing it not to glorify men, but God. It means not cheating in your homework. 
It means faithfully serving your children even when they're ungrateful little turds about it. Right? It means making your boss look good even if she's a jerk or loving your coworkers even when they take advantage of you. Right? Faithfulness means pursuing their good for the long term. But let's be honest. Right? You and I, we really fall far short of this. We often treat work as a means to an end, believing the lie that God doesn't care about us being faithful workers. Trigger and Gilbert continue in their book. They say, believing that God doesn't care about our work can lead us into sin. Christians often find themselves doing things at work they would never do anywhere else, right? Treating people with contempt, losing their temper, stealing time or supplies, cutting corners or fudging what's right and wrong. And rather than faithfully working to adorn the gospel with good work, like Brandon taught us from Titus 2 a couple weeks ago, it is so easy to be unfaithful in our work. Cutting corners or only working hard when we feel like we're going to get a pat on the back for it. Right? And over the years, I have certainly been guilty of treating the gift of work with contempt. Faithfulness is supposed to play out in our friendships. There's this amazing story in 1 Samuel between uh, the friendship of David and Jonathan. So just some background here. Saul was Israel's first king. But we read in this book that like Saul rejects God, just wholesale dismisses him. And likewise, God rejects Saul as king. And so what, uh, what God does is he sets up David's kingdom. But Saul has a firstborn son, Jonathan, who's supposed to take the throne next. And so we see that David is an enemy of Saul and Jonathan, or at least he's supposed to be. Right? But we, we see in 1 Samuel 18 that Jonathan actually accepts David's kingship and his friendship. 1 Samuel 18 says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and his sword, his bow, and his belt. And it's probably lost on us what like giving up some clothes and like a cool sword means. But what we need to understand is that Jonathan here is surrendering the throne. He is ceremonially saying, you're the king and I will never be. Right, so the glory, the riches, the power, the influence, and the comforts of being king are something he is surrendering in this moment. Right? In faithful obedience to God and faithful love to his friend, he makes this costly decision. And what's more, later on, as Saul, Jonathan's dad, is plotting to kill David, Jonathan risks his life to save his. Jonathan's faithfulness as he pursues David good, David's good is costly. Right? It cost him the throne. It nearly cost him his life. But often you and I fail to be the kind of friends that Jonathan is. Mostly when we're looking for friends, we're looking for people like us with all the same hobbies and interests, the same age, the same personality, maybe the same politics. And often we're friends as long as we're friendly. Right? The, the minute conflict comes up in a friendship, it is so easy to bail on that person. Faithful friendship means being consistent and standing up for your friends when someone else unfairly criticizes them when they're not in the room. But it is so much easier right, to be two-faced and to join in the criticism because they aren't there. That's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is supposed to play out in our marriages too, and this is maybe the most like on-the-nose example, right? So there's a minor prophet uh, called Hosea. Right? They call them minor prophets because their books are short, which I think is fine. Um, but Hosea is told in the first chapter of his book, right, he records how God tells him to marry this promiscuous woman, right? The, the implication is that she is a, a prostitute. Um, and you need to know that the story is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? So this is describing something God did. It is not saying that you're supposed to follow this example. But God is making a point through Hosea's life, right? So God tells Hosea, his prophet, to marry this promiscuous woman named Gomer. And from the beginning, even at the altar, Hosea knows that she's going to be unfaithful. But after Gomer leaves Hosea to be with other men, she becomes enslaved to them. And Hosea is told by God to pay for her release, 
Just imagine this, right? Like Hosea having to go find the men his wife has been cheating on him with and giving them money to have her back. So why does God command this? What is he trying to show us? Hosea chapter 3 gives us the answer. Hosea records, The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. Right? Hosea is displaying the faithfulness of God and what he does. Just imagine, too, like before Hosea helps Gomer, she's stuck as a slave to this man who don't care anything about her. Right? She's away from her family. She has no control over her life. And it seems very likely she's being abused in this situation. But after Hosea redeems her, she's back with her family. Now she's safe. She is loved. And Hosea, pursuing her good for the long term and committing himself to her despite her betrayal, right? Note that this faithfulness costs Hosea. He is at home with their three kids. And Hosea 1 makes it pretty clear that he fathered the first child and not the second or third. But he is home with them, caring for them while his wife is running around. Understand that Hosea shouldn't have to do this, right? But God reveals his faithfulness by calling Hosea to make a costly sacrifice to be faithful to his wife. And in our marriages, we don't show this kind of faithfulness often. While we may not be committing adultery, our unfaithfulness in our marriages can look different, right? Rather than sacrificially or faithfully meeting our spouse's need for time with us, we might only give them what's left over, the scraps of our time after we're like burned out in all our hobbies, Rather than looking to faithfully serve and love our spouse by giving up our own way for their sake, we may constantly look to control things and demand our preferences as if they were inherently better. Rather than practicing faithfulness by having difficult conversations with our spouse out of a desperate need for approval, we may avoid conflict by any means necessary. And let's be honest, some of us don't even meet this standard. Being faithful for a short while isn't faithfulness. Being faithful when it's easy isn't faithfulness. And rather than practicing, oh, sorry. (laughs) When we're unfaithful, it damages our relationships. When people see that we're only around when it's easy or for a little while, it shows that we can't be trusted. Right? In the song Promises, Dustin Kensrue describes our unfaithfulness this way. He says, we profess undying love, but does that word hold any weight? When we reserve the right to break any vow that draws our blood, our word is so faint and feeble, broken by the slightest breeze or breath. Our hearts are so deceitful, sick and filled with lies that lead to death. We are cowards and thieves, but we never turn to grieve the damage done. God takes our unfaithfulness very seriously. Our unfaithfulness breaks our relationships, it leaves us empty, and it separates us from God. Earlier I had mentioned how God revealed himself to Moses when he said, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The question this morning is, how is God going to leave us, the guilty, unpunished, and yet show love and faithfulness to us? Titus 3 says this, that when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, so that being justified in his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
Our hope is this. The faithfulness of God to us in the gospel in the midst of our unfaithfulness. On the cross, Jesus bore all of our unfaithfulness. And even though he never sinned, God treated Jesus as if he was sin itself, crushing him instead of us. He didn't deserve this punishment. You and I do. We hear in Mark 15 about when Jesus was being crucified, that at three in the afternoon he cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, Lemma Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tabidi Anyobwile, which is a, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., he writes about God forsaking his son so that God could be faithful to us like this. He says, We may ask ourselves, what can this cry from Jesus at the cross mean? It means that the Father allowed the Son to suffer social abandonment and emotional desertion, and yet it means more. The Father allowed the Son to suffer spiritual wrath. This is the deepest, darkest part of Jesus' suffering. The spiritual forsakenness, the spiritual wrath from the Father occurs deep down in the Godhead itself. We should not speculate unless we blaspheme, but something was torn in the very fabric of the Trinity. To get a sense of this, we must remember the very relationship that the Father had to the Son from eternity past. For all eternity, Jesus lived with his Father. It's all he had ever known, the loving, approving, shining face of his dad. But on that dark midday in Golgotha, when the sun refused to shine, the unimaginable and indescribable happened. That beautiful, shining, loving face of the Father withdrew into the dark, frowning, punishing face of wrath. But here's what we must remember and treasure, that Jesus willingly suffers this so sinners like you and I can escape it. Jesus' abandonment means the sinner's adoption. He takes our place in the cross so we can take his place in the kingdom. Because he was abandoned socially, we may be children in the house of God. Because he was deserted emotionally, we become whole again, renewed in his image. Because he suffered spiritual separation, we may be spiritually united to him through faith. So we will never be separated from God's love. Because he was forsaken, we are forgiven. And now he says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. God is faithful to you because he forsook Jesus. And when we deserve to be abandoned by God, Jesus stepped in to rescue us from that awful fate. There are no lengths this morning that Jesus would not go to to rescue you. None. But his faithfulness is greater than not just not abandoning us. He brings us into his family, right? Ephesians 1 makes it clear that we are his sons with an inheritance to come. And Revelation 19 makes it clear that we are his bride. And now he promises never to forget us or abandon us. This week, uh, God's just been making my unfaithfulness really clear to me. All right, so I have this dumb engineer brain that like sees everything as a problem to be solved. You know, so... As much as I love spending time with my wife and my children and at my job, sometimes I just treat them as like, you know, this, this hurdle or something to get to my hobbies, which is just horrible, right? I think about how much time do I have to invest in my job or my marriage or with my kids to be counted faithful, right? This, this is sick. This is horrible. It just shows the depravity in my heart. And rather than seeing work and family and marriage as the gifts that they are, I'm often just treating them as obstacles in the way of getting to my hobbies, Right here at River City, we talk about the heart a lot, and this is why. From the outside, you may be practicing some version of faithfulness, but God sees what's going on in your heart. What God has made clear to me this week is how unfaithful I am. 
I was reflecting this week on how God has just been faithful to me in the midst of my rebellion. What he showed me was not like some really dramatic story, but he showed me how his faithfulness is like the steady thing that's always there. Right? So if you're like me, it can be really easy to just like blow off prayer and like reading your Bible for really long stretches of time. And I want to make a disclaimer here, right? Like there's some religious movements that really like hammer quiet times over your head. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that's fine. But some of you do. There's this idea that you have to like carve out 30 minutes a day. And if you miss a day, it's a really big deal. Like I just want to speak against like adding religion on top of the gospel. But, but when we go long stretches of time without talking to God at all or reading his word, what we're doing is we're snubbing our best friend. We're showing our father we don't care about him by our inaction. We're saying that he's not important to us. But every time I come back, right, like every time I come back to him, he just showers me with this affection, showing me how worthwhile he is, how much he cares about me, how big a deal the cross is. And while there might be conviction of sin, there is never condemnation when I come back to him. He is always, always, always faithful. When just like reading about the Father's faithfulness to us, I came across this story that I just thought was like really appropriate. I just wanted to share with you. It goes like this. Uh, everybody felt it. A moment of eerie silence, a low rumble, and the ground began shaking. Buildings swayed and buckled and then collapsed like houses of cards. And less than four minutes later, more than 30,000 people passed away from an 8.2 earthquake that rocked a flattened Armenia in 1989. In the muddled chaos, a distressed father bolted through the winding streets, leading to the school where his son had gone earlier that morning. The man couldn't stop thinking about the promise he'd made to his son again and again. No matter what happens, Armand, I'll always be there. He reached the site where the school had been, but saw only a pile of rubble. And he stood there, fighting back tears, but then he took off, stumbling over debris, running toward the east corner where he knew the classroom was. With nothing but his bare hands, he started digging, desperately picking up bricks and pieces of wall plaster while others stood by, watching in forlorn disbelief. He even heard someone growl, just forget it, man, they're all dead. The father looked up flustered and replied, you can grumble or you can help me. But only a few pitched in and most of them gave up when their muscles began to ache. But the man couldn't stop thinking about his son. So he kept digging for hours. 12 hours, 24 hours, 30 hours, and in the 38th hour straight of digging, he heard a muffled groan from under a piece of wallboard. He seized the board and pulled it back, and he cried, Armand! And from the darkness came a slight shaking voice, Papa. Other weak voices began calling out as the young survivor stirred beneath the still uncleared rubble. Gasps and shouts of bewildered relief came from the few onlookers and parents that remained, and they found 14 of the 33 students alive. When Armand finally emerged, he tried to help dig until all his surviving classmates were out. And everybody standing there heard him as he turned to his friends and said, You see, I told you my father wouldn't forget about us. God has not forgotten you this morning. He is pursuing your good for the long term, despite all it cost him and despite all your unfaithfulness to him. His hands bled too. But when his hands bled, you are not his son, but his enemy. Fixing our eyes on the good news of the gospel is what produces real faithfulness. When we're tempted to take shortcuts in our work, 
Remembering Christ being forsaken for us empowers us to be faithful. When we're tempted to only hand the scraps over to our, of our time to our spouses and live out like this weak, worldly version of faithfulness, we remember the true faithfulness of God, giving up all he had to get us back when we were his enemies. And when we're tempted to gossip and backstab and throw away relationships when they become inconvenient, we reflect on Jesus' faithfulness to us in the midst of our rebellion. The truth of God's faithfulness to us in the gospel is what we remember every week when we take communion. If the elements are in the foyer, if you didn't grab them on your way in, feel free to go out there and grab them uh, whenever is convenient. You know, we've been studying the gospel of Mark in small groups, and I'm just struck by Jesus' faithfulness to us as he established communion. Right, the night that Jesus breaks the bread and shares the cup, he knows it, he does it knowing his disciples will abandon him, knowing Peter will deny him three times, and noting Judas will betray him. This is what we're remembering with communion. We're celebrating the fact that in all our unfaithfulness, Jesus is so faithful to us. I just want to leave you with this this morning. Faithfulness isn't easy, right? Becoming faithful in your work, your singleness, your marriage, and your friendships isn't something that's going to happen overnight, right? And even when we're looking at the truth of the gospel, this isn't going to be easy. However, as we stumble in growing in the gospel, stumble in growing in our faithfulness, we rest in the faithfulness of Jesus. For those who have trusted in his finished work, he will never leave you or forsake you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us, that you went to the cross for us when we were your enemies, when we had nothing to give back. You are good, God, and I pray that the truth of the gospel would foster the fruit of the Spirit in us. Thank you.